Hello and welcome to the IGH podcast. On the 24th of January 2019, the government released a policy paper which you probably never heard about. In it they said, by 2040 our vision is of a world in which antimicrobial resistance is effectively contained and controlled. That sounds great, but veiled beneath the vision is the suggestion that if we continue on our current course, antimicrobial resistance isn't being effectively contained and controlled at present. It's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore the impact of current antimicrobial use on disease and healthcare costs. Despite various warnings from scientists and the press over the last few decades, many will be shocked to hear that infections caused by antimicrobial resistant superbugs are already causing 700,000 deaths globally. If no action is taken, that figure is expected to rise to 10 million by 2050, with a cumulative cost of $100 trillion. And it's important to emphasise that antimicrobial resistance doesn't just impact human health through infections, but will also negatively affect food sustainability, food security and socio-economic development. Antimicrobial resistance is a global problem and we all have to understand what we can do to help the cause either as a health professional, patient or member of the public. With us today to talk about antimicrobial resistance and how we can combat it is Dr. Jenny Wilson, Vice President of the Infection Prevention Society. Jenny is a Professor of Healthcare Epidemiology at the University of West London. She is an experienced infection control practitioner with extensive knowledge of healthcare associated infection, surveillance and data management, teaching and implementing infection control strategy. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. So I thought we could start off by doing a couple of introductions. First of all, what is the Infection Prevention Society? So the Infection Prevention Society is a a society largely made up of infection control practitioners, Mm. uh, clinical microbiologists and other healthcare uh, professionals who have a particular interest in um, preventing and controlling infection in both um, community and acute healthcare settings. It was established in the 1970s. And our aim really is to use education and other resources um, to try and ensure that no person is harmed by an infection that is, in, is prevent, preventable. And what kind of work does IPS do? So we run uh, expert meetings, conferences, We produce resources for our members and also for other healthcare professionals that help them understand and apply good practice in relation to the prevention of uh, infection. Um, And we run a a website where we provide a forum that our members can exchange ideas and information. Excellent. So you're the vice president of the Infection Prevention Society, but you're also professor of healthcare epidemiology at the University of West London. What are your own research interests? I work within a a primarily nursing research unit and our interests are really based around the delivery of care and how we can improve infection prevention practice in in the way patients are managed. Um, So I've done quite a lot of work around the use of clinical gloves and exploring how the misuse of gloves results in um, an increased risk of transmission infection in healthcare settings. Um, And we are also doing quite a lot of work at the moment about 
strategies to uh, improve hydration as a way of preventing urinary tract infection. We've done work in care homes in particular in relation to improving hydration. And more recently, we've started to look at strategies, um, practical strategies that are all about best practice in nursing care in preventing the risk of patients acquiring a pneumonia while they're in hospital. So those are our main main areas of research at the moment. Oh, it sounds like you're very busy at the moment. Yes, very busy. So um, you've come to talk to us about antimicrobial resistance. Now, I remember reading the James Herriot books when I was younger, uh, describing veterinary practice in the Yorkshire Dales in the 1950s. And he describes the arrival of antimicrobials as a kind of miracle cure for previously incurable conditions. What's changed since the 1950s in terms of antibiotic use? Yes, interestingly, uh, very little has really changed. It's just our our perception, perhaps, has become more acute that resistance is a problem. So uh, since the first antibiotic penicillin went into commercial production in the 1950s, right from that time, it was recognised that microorganisms had the capacity to develop resistance to that antibiotic. And actually, by the end of the 50s, there was sufficient concern about resistance, particularly of Staphylococcus aureus, which was a primary cause of infection at, at that time. There was real concern that strains of Staph aureus were already resistant to pe- penicillin. So that was within 10 years of it being produced. And another drug called uh, methicillin was introduced in order to, to tackle the resistant strains. But again, by the 1990s, that was no longer useful as a first-line drug for treating staphylococcal infections because the level of resistance to methicillin by then was so high. So that really was a good indication that that microorganisms inevitably develop resistance to antibiotics. And the more they're exposed to antibiotics, the more likely they are to develop resistance. Which kind of begs the question, why didn't we do something about it sooner if we realised that resistance was a a problem? Yes, and I I think what happened in the early years um, from when penicillin was introduced, there were a large number of different drugs produced over perhaps the next 30 years. And so it seemed like there was always another antibiotic to reach for. Um, as new agents and and very different agents were produced. The problem really was that many of them were based on a similar chemical structure. And so over time, organisms that developed resistance to one type of agent actually could also relatively easily develop resistance to another type of agent. And, And more recently, new chemical structures have really dried up. We haven't had a new type of antibiotic produced for over 20 years now. And so we're really relying on a group of drugs that are essentially quite quite basic structures that we have known of of worked as antibiotics for a a long, long time. And that's given microorganisms uh, a a long period to develop mechanisms that enable them to be resistant. Is there any particular reason why we're not producing these new chemicals? Is it because we've picked the low-hanging fruit and we've gotten the easy ones and now it's it's much more difficult to produce something new that the bacteria haven't encountered before? Yes, there's an element of that. And there are, um, 
There are some commercial issues um, that are an important driver of, of antibiotic development um, because from a pharmaceutical company's perspective, if they're going to invest what are essentially huge amounts of money into developing new drugs that may only have a useful life of a few years before resistance becomes a major problem, or indeed because they may spend a lot of money producing a new drug, but actually its use is restricted when it's it's put on the market because of concerns about developing resistance. You can see that the market model is quite challenging. It doesn't encourage pharmaceutical companies to, to put a lot of time and effort and money into generating new drugs. So that is, is perhaps one of the problems. Um, but also just because Microorganisms are relatively simple organisms, and so there are there are really a limit to the number of ways that you can um, develop agents that will tackle them. And we, we really need a lot more work to be done on perhaps looking at far more novel ways uh, of trying to um, destroy them or, or prevent their growth, uh, which are not so susceptible to the resistance mechanisms they've already developed. That sounds like uh, the topic for uh, another long discussion. Indeed, yeah. yes. So how does antimicrobial resistance develop in, in microorganisms? The reason that they're able to develop resistance often very easily is because they are very simple structures. They replicate very rapidly. Um, they generally have just a single strand of DNA um, which very often they don't copy hugely accurately. So it means that the, the DNA can develop mutations and those are very useful to microorganisms. So a mutation um, may be harmful to the organism, but equally it may actually enable them to resist antibiotics because it may modify a surface receptor or an enzyme they produce that is the target of a particular antibiotic. Once a microorganism has developed resistance because they multiply very rapidly. Um, it can sue that strain that is resistant can actually soon take over because it is it has those advantages of being able to survive when it's exposed to those antibiotics. And then to compound the problem, um, they are able to share their DNA relatively easily, um, particularly in environments where you maybe have. Uh, different species of organisms that have acquired different resistance. So in the gut, for example, um, they are able to uh, share their DNA um, and pass it from one cell to the other. And that means that resistance genes can be spread quite easily, both to other cells within the same species or to other entirely different species. So it's essentially a situation where you're speeding up the process of evolution, I guess, because you're applying a selection pressure to, to the population and you're just selecting for the resistant bacteria. That's right. And so the more a particular antibiotic is used, the greater the selection pressure on the, on the uh, microorganisms it's being used against and the more likely because of that rapid replication and risk of mutation or indeed... Um, the selection of those organisms in in the, the the culture that already have resistance to that particular antibiotic and they will predominantly survive. 
I guess it's not really a new game for the bacteria either because the first antibiotics were isolated from fungi and other uh, organisms that bacteria share their environment with. So they've been in this arms race with, with, with fungi for millennia before we came along and started messing it up. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And many of the agents that we rely on are in some way based on um, the original chemicals that we've identified through fungi in particular. Um, and yes, many of, many of these are things that bacterial agents will have encountered in the past. And what's changed about medical practice over the last 50 years has perhaps allowed antimicrobial resistance to develop at a faster rate? Yes, uh, and this is another key part of how we've ended up in a situation now where we have major concerns about antimicrobial resistance because the way that we deliver healthcare now is hugely different to how it was in the 1950s and even really up to the 1970s. So the first intensive care units actually weren't established until the 1960s. And so prior to that, many people who developed severe disease would have died and they then uh, wouldn't have been vulnerable to the sort of infections that we see now that occur in people who have severe or chronic diseases, which make them much more vulnerable to infection. And in the past, those individuals simply wouldn't have survived. So we are using far more antibiotics, rightly, to treat people um, who maybe have underlying um, carcinomas or underlying respiratory disease that makes them so much more vulnerable to infection. And the antibiotics are essential to manage those infections and extend their lives. And do you think that we're prescribing antibiotics for conditions now which we weren't previously using antibiotics for in the past? I mean, there are some examples, certainly, where that is the case, because there are some um, diseases now, if you look at gastric ulcers, that we now know that those are uh, primarily caused by an organism called Helicobacter. And in the past, we didn't realise um, that it, it was an infection. Um, and there are other examples such as that, that as, as medical advances have been made, we've realized that antibiotics are useful um, for, for treatment of, of things that in the past we didn't realize that antibiotics would be useful for. And how big is the problem of antimicrobial resistance in the UK? Resistance, or the, the size of the problem of resistance, varies according to the type of the infection. And that's really important to understand. So it's not necessarily a global problem that affects every microorganism and every antibiotic. Um, but there are concentrated problems among some, and some microorganisms that are particularly problematic in, in the way that they cause disease. So if you look at a bacteria such as Streptococci pyogenes, which causes scarlet fever, sore throats, um, it's very rare to see resistant to antibiotics. It's primarily susceptible to penicillin, and that has not changed over decades. Whereas other organisms, such as the coliforms that live in the gut, um, at least three quarters are resistant to at least one antibiotic that you might choose to treat them with. 
And in the UK, around about 10% of those coliforms are resistant to the newer antibiotics that we would use as the first choice for treating infections that they cause. So the extent of resistance as well is often strongly linked to the amount of antibiotic that's used. Uh, And a really good example of that are urinary tract infections, a very common form of infection, one one of the most common infections we see amongst hospital patients, but also a very common infection uh, in the community. Um, So trimethoprim has been used to treat it very widely, but now more than a third of those urinary tract infections that occur in the UK are resistant to trimethoprim because so many of the organisms that cause the UTIs have previously been exposed to trimethoprim and they've acquired resistance. What options are open to treating such resistant infections? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So in many cases, there are antibiotics that you can still use to treat these infections, but there are a number of problems with that. Sometimes the reserve antibiotics we have are quite toxic. And so they are not antibiotics that you would you would want to give um, readily because they may actually cause the patient more harm than good. Secondly, some of the newer antibiotics we have where resistance, so the microorganisms haven't been exposed to them for so long, so the level of resistance to them is quite low, but actually there is a reluctance to use them unless absolutely necessary because, again, the more we use them, the greater the risk that resistance will emerge. And in some infections, um, you can treat the infection with a very high dose of a drug to which it appears to be resistant. But actually, if you give a very high dose of that antibiotic, it it will be effective. But there is no doubt that there are some types of infection, there's some types of gonorrhea, and there are some types of tuberculosis that are, are known to be resistant to all the drugs that can be used to treat them. And patients who acquire those infections actually really have a high risk of mortality as a result. So it it has the potential to cause life-threatening illnesses uh, and cause a major problem within hospitals and other care settings. But is, is antimicrobial resistance mainly a problem at the primary care level? So if you go to the GP or is it mainly in hospitals? It, it's a problem across both those arenas. Um, in the hospital setting, the the problem is particularly acute because patients, by their nature, if they're in hospital, are seriously ill. And so it's highly likely that if they develop an infection caused by a resistant organism and they have many other underlying uh, illnesses, then that resistant infection, if it's not possible to treat, is highly likely to result in their death. So those severe infections that hospital patients are more vulnerable to are certainly of major concern and much more likely to result in mortality. But that's not to say that resistance in the community is not a problem as well. I mentioned gonorrhea, um, which clearly is primarily a community disease, but also the, the UTIs that I mentioned and the resistance to trimethoprim um, this is a, a treatment that is is given out in primary care and general practice routinely across the country, and the resistance to these agents is widespread across the country. Uh, the difference is that patients who develop UTI in a community setting 
they for many of them um, it may resolve on its own or there may be another agent that could be used and they may well recover but a few of those and we are increasingly seeing this in our national data in the UK a few of those UTIs develop into a much more serious infection either they infect the kidneys or they get into the bloodstream and we there's certainly evidence now of a, a steady year-on-year -year increase in particularly gram-negative pathogens such as E. coli, commonly associated with urinary tract infections, that are causing these serious blood infections, um, and which are, are steadily increasing in number and have been doing so over about the last 10-15 years. And that may well be in part associated with resistance in to to these first line agents such as trimethoprim um, in community patients and therefore a problem with treating UTIs which then are able to become um, more severe and enter the bloodstream. So it's definitely a, a major problem within the UK but we're often told when people talk about antimicrobial resistance that part of the problem is our own overuse or misuse of antibiotics how far is that the case? I mean, there is no doubt that misuse of antibiotics or overuse of antibiotics occurs um, and repeated exposure of microorganisms to antibiotics encourages resistant strains to develop. So the more we use antibiotics, the more resistance we are going to see. It is often a problem in, in primary care because patients... Um, believe that they have an infection and that antibiotics will uh, treat that infection and make them feel better. And yet often those infections are caused by viruses, that they're not going to have any effect on the, the, the virus causing the infection because antibiotics don't work against viruses. Um, and just by giving the antibiotics, it's just increasing the risk that re resistant pathogens will develop. So that is part of the problem in hospital settings. There are uh, there's plenty of evidence to show that antibiotics are used for prolonged periods, or antibiotics are used that have an unnecessarily wide spectrum of activity. So they kill a, a whole range of microorganisms, not just the one causing the infection. And again, that encourages other bacteria in the body to develop resistance. Um, so it's certainly part of the problem. In terms of the UK, we've had an initiative over the last five years, and it's just been rolled out for the next five years to really tackle the problem of antimicrobial resistance. And there's certainly some evidence that it's affecting prescribing in a positive way. Um, whilst in other countries where there are perhaps far fewer controls over access to antibiotics, where you can buy them over the counter, then there is uh, uh, far greater problems with resistance in, in some of these countries. So control over access is a critical part of minimising the, the emergence of resistance so that it creates those problems amongst more seriously ill patients. Well, one aspect of antimicrobial resistance is use in human medicine. But of course, there's a lot of antibiotics used in farm and companion animals as well. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, and it's 
I think really become apparent because of the the initiatives, the more recent initiatives about trying to control um, antimicrobial resistance, that it's become apparent that actually a huge amount of antibiotics are actually used to treat infection in animals and that this is part of the problem um, in two ways. Firstly, because in exactly the same way in humans, it encourages resistant microorganisms to emerge amongst the animal population. But then these are able to transfer to humans either directly through contact um, with the animals or via the food chain um, when uh, farm animals are then slaughtered and, and brought into the food chain and they may contain antibiotics. And therefore, in the same way as with humans, it's essential that antibiotics are only used when absolutely necessary to treat infection in animals. Um, uh, and that the sort of powerful drugs that we really need to protect from uh, developing resistance, powerful drugs that we will use to treat human infections, are not overused um, in, uh, in a, a farm or companion, a companion animal setting. Um, and actually, the EU has really contributed to preventing this happening by in, ensuring that the use of antibiotics simply as growth promoters, not to treat infection, but to just improve the growth of the animal. And that their use has been banned in the EU since 2006. And that is not necessarily the same in, in many other countries around the world. So now that we've described the problem of antimicrobial resistance and we know more or less how it happens. I mean, I guess, first of all, the next question is what's the relationship between infection prevention and antimicrobial resistance? Presumably, as uh, the Infection Prevention Society, there must be a link between the two. Yes, and, and actually, whilst a lot of energy is spent trying to uh, better steward the use of antibiotics uh, to treat infection, uh, really a critical part of the problem is preventing infections occurring in the first, first place. Because if you're able to prevent the infection, uh, stop people developing an infection, then you don't need to use the antibiotics. And going back to what I said earlier about the critical part of resistance emerging is the exposure of microorganisms to different antimicrobial agents. That is what generates uh, the problems with resistance. So the more that we can stop using antibiotics by preventing infection, the better. The second part of uh, or role that infection prevention has to play is that if a patient is carrying or perhaps has an infection caused by a resistant organism, then there is a real risk that that organism that is already resistant will transfer to other people, particularly in healthcare settings where we use a lot of equipment, we have a lot of hand contact with patients, and it's quite easy for these organisms to be transferred from one person to another. And therefore, we spread the resistance problem to other patients simply through contact. Um, so those are the two key parts of uh, where infection control, um, prevention and control has a real part to play in reducing issues with antimicrobial resistance. So the, the fight against antimicrobial resistance really has to be a two-pronged approach, not just taking into account uh, prescribing practices in doctors and patients, but also their behaviour and, and how they prevent infections in the first place. Uh, ab absolutely. Um, 
And far more emphasis is needed on infection prevention in the first place because, you know, the reality is, as we've shown since the 1950s, we are not going to stop resistance emerging. So the more we can do to prevent infection, the better. And in terms of the resources that are available to healthcare professionals, do you think that they're having the right tools and training to tackle antimicrobial resistance? Yes, I think um, healthcare professionals now have training in infection prevention practice, which is critical to prevent infections occurring. Uh, Patients in hospital in particular, or indeed entering any sort of healthcare treatment, are at increased of inquiring infection, increased risk of inquiring infection because of the procedures that they often undergo. So um, invasive procedures that bypass their normal protections against infection, putting tubes through the skin, tubes into the bladder, um, surgery, and so on. So ensuring that staff adhere to best practice in order to minimise the risk that patients acquire infection or indeed that resistant organisms are spread to other patients is really important. And infection control practitioners, uh, of which every um, acute hospital in the country and many community services have access and indeed employ many infection prevention and control nurses to provide an expert um, resource that healthcare professionals can go to for advice and to ensure that policy is disseminated Um, that helps people apply good infection control practices. Guidelines for antibiotic use are um, available locally and strongly promoted locally. Um, And there are many useful sources of specialist advice, not just the infection control practitioners, but also antimicrobial pharmacists, clinical microbiologists. um, that, That can give that specific information about how to reduce the risk that specific patients will um, transmit infection to others, or indeed selecting appropriate antibiotics to treat patients with infection. And in addition, there are also um, excellent web resources, particularly those from the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. They have a very large web-based resource on antibiotics, antibiotic stewardship, um, and issues around resistance. And what is the Infection Prevention Society doing around the issue of antimicrobial resistance? So our primary concern is to ensure that the work of the society supports healthcare professionals to practice as safely as possible to prevent patients acquiring infection. To that end, we run study days, we run conferences to disseminate information about best practice. Um, We publish a journal called the Journal of Infection Prevention, which um, has a lot of very um, excellent research evidence, practical studies, improvement ideas that um, healthcare professionals can use and infection control practitioners can use to enhance practice in healthcare settings. We've also developed a range of tools um, that help practitioners to systematically monitor quality of healthcare, both the environment and different practices and other resources that we have um, help aim to help healthcare professionals deliver safe care. So, for example, we've got um, resources that help to assess 
practice in operating theatres to ensure the risk of surgical site infection is reduced. We've got guidance about supporting the management of intravenous devices. And I suppose the final question is, um, how can the general public play their part in tackling antimicrobial resistance? Well, the first thing relates back to how important infection prevention is as part of the antimicrobial resistance agenda. So for for the general public, keeping healthy is really important because protecting the body from picking up infections means that our body is more able to fight infection on its own without the new the use of drugs it's really important to only take antibiotics when they're really needed to treat infection and infections that the body cannot deal with them with itself so many minor infections the body has um, an immune system that's purpose is to deal with the infection in fact generally what antibiotics do is they just sort of add a helping hand to the immune system so they may control the growth of the bacteria so that the immune system can actually tackle the infection. Um, so for minor infections, many will get better on their own. And as I mentioned previously, where they're caused by viruses and very commonly the sort of infections that many people get, respiratory infections in particular, ear infections, are caused by these viruses and they cannot be treated by antibiotics. So for patients, it's really important that they follow their doctor's advice about whether they need to take antibiotics or not and not pressurise medical staff to give them antibiotics when actually they are not going to make any difference and and giving them is just going to increase the risk that resistant organisms will emerge. It looks like um, everybody has a role to play in tackling antimicrobial resistance from healthcare professionals. right down to patients and and even the people around them. Yes, absolutely. Um, It is a problem for everybody in the community and everybody needs to play their part in trying to ensure that these valuable uh, drugs that we have remain valuable for decades to come. Um, I think it's easy to forget in these modern times um, what life was like prior to antibiotics um, being introduced in the 1950s. So prior to then, infection was a a major killer. And if we don't tackle the problem of emerging resistance and use our antibiotics wisely, then we are going to gradually return to that time where we are no longer able to take an antibiotic and and treat an infection. Excellent. Well, on on that note, uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time for today but thank you very much Jenny for coming along and sharing your insights on antimicrobial resistance Uh, it's been very interesting Uh, I look forward to catching up with you again at the next podcast that we do together which will be at the Infection Prevention Society conference in September thank you it was a pleasure and thank you for listening to the IGH podcast If you enjoyed this episode, then you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also leave reviews and comments for us there. If you want to know more about IGH, then you can visit our website at www.liverpool.ac.uk forward slash infection dash and dash global dash health. Or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at IGH Liverpool. A huge thank you as well to the Microbiology Society and the Wellcome Trust who provided the funds for the recording equipment. 
The music is Words We Will Remember by Josh Woodward. This track and more of his work can be found on his website at www.joshwoodward.com.